Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. We're here for a second time today with you to answer your money questions. So this is a brand new type of episode that we're going to do for you today. And I hope that you like this and find some tremendous value. But over time, we get lots of questions. And these are questions that come in through every venue. So through YouTube, through email, through Facebook, through um, some in even, I would say client meetings, we get a lot of questions there, but we have not brought up any of those questions here today. Um, But through various formats, even LinkedIn and Facebook, where we live stream and share the podcast. And so we all have money questions. And if you have questions, maybe you're going to find yourself in some of these questions that our listeners have asked right now. But if you haven't got an answer to a question that's on your mind, we'd love to hear from you as well. So please go ahead and share your questions. We love them. We love answering them. We always answer questions when we first receive them. So if they're on YouTube, we'll answer the question on YouTube. But we thought it would be really nice to go ahead and do one very quick, compact, packed episode full of your questions and very specific answers. And so we will give you credit by your name and where we have the question from. And we'd love to have you join in today and we'd love to see your future questions as well. So um, Bruce, anything else you want to share that we, you'd like to talk about before we jump into the first question today? Yeah, just one thing, you know, I'm, we're not here to pick a fight on what's right or what's wrong. And I, I find that this has been, this, this goes on over the internet all the time. You know, people are trying to prove to you that you're wrong. And what's interesting is uh, one of the tenets of being of an investment advisor is to know your client and what's the best you're being evaluated on what's the best for your client. So when people make comments about, oh, this is this isn't right, or you guys are doing it wrong, or um, you you should never do this, this is a scam, you know, so on and so forth, they don't even know what people are trying to accomplish. So we're just going to answer these questions to the best of our ability, but also. Sometimes I'm going to say, hey, I don't know your situation, Mm -hmm. so I can't really answer this according to your situation, but here are some of the things to consider. Uh, That's perfect. And so, yes, let's just distinguish. This today is not advising. This is not a recommendation. This is education that can be applied generically and broadly and information that might help you in processing what is on your mind. This is not advice today. If you want advice, go ahead and book a call at themoneyadvantage.com, jump in a call with our advisor team, and that would be how you figure out how to apply to your specific situation. So let's go ahead with question number one. This is from Jorge on YouTube. Does it make sense to take out equity from an investment rental to start a loan policy and then borrow from that policy to reinvest in other investments? Well, here's a great example. Um, Really, you can't answer this question without knowing your other investment goals. But I would just say that I think rental people do this all the time to invest in other real estate. So in other words, they they get appreciation, they get a line of credit, or they do a cash out refinance in, in one rental property to buy another rental property. 
And actually their cash on cash return is better on two properties than there is on one, even if it's paid paid off in some cases. So the, the gist of the question is, does it make sense to then take out a policy? Well, I believe that it always makes sense to have the foundation of, a, of having life insurance in your world. So that's would be the first thing. I don't even know if you have any life insurance. The second thing is, is that Yes, you're going to get the uninterrupted compounding effect of, of running a, the premium and then borrowing against that, that uh, cash value and death benefit to start another investment prop, property. People do, people do those in combination all the time. Whether it's, it's good for you, I, I don't know. I think I'll just add to that real briefly. Yes, it's a good idea to take cash value or take a loan against cash value in a life insurance policy and put that to work by reinvesting into other investments. There's two parts of the question. There's also the first part of the question is, should I take equity out of an investment rental to start my policy in the first place? Now that's a question of, do I want to take equity out of that property? And do I want to put that into a life insurance policy? That's something that um, we are not going to tell you to do that, but that's something that can be done. Right, Bruce? Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, you can take capital from anywhere. All right. The next one, let, the next, okay. Yeah, the next one's very, very long, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit of it. It says the main perk of velocity banking isn't that you're paying debt sooner. You do, but it's a function of throwing more cash at the debt, and then you have a conventional mortgage. The perk is parking, and then I'm gonna skip down. It says the cash being that you might, the catch being that you might be paying higher interest rate. So in order to mitigate that, you move principal from mortgage to the HELOC in chunks that you can pay down all the way to zero so that you have the duration of the payback, the average balance in the HELOC gets close to half. And then later on, it says, but really the vast bulk of what it's being touted as an amazing way to pay off debt faster and reduce interest purely on a bit. I mean, this paragraph is complicated just to read. What I've found in, over my career is the more complicated you make your financial life, the less likely you're actually going to carry through on the strategy that you put in place. Now, I'm not a big fan of velocity banking for a couple of reasons. One is I don't think the benefits of, of what they claim paying simple interest versus compounded interest. And if you ever want to Google this, Google Todd Lankford on the, the difference between simple interest and compound interest. Todd would even actually challenge that concept, but we don't have time to talk about that. I'm just talking about the complications because then at the very end is about the second point. Lon from YouTube says, the other question that really needs to be asked, is it really better to pay off my mortgage as soon as possible? versus use the available income for investing or saving? That to me is a, a better question. Mm -hmm. And I always say there's the financial mathematical reason and the emotional reason that you may or may not do this. I tell, I tell people all the time, financially, I don't believe you should accelerate uh, paying off because you lose control and the banks are in greater control. Some people come back to me and say, yeah, but if you get it paid off, then the banks are not in control of you at all. And I say, that's true. But what I would do is I'd build my equity outside of, of your home 
And then you can decide, hey, I'm in total control now because if the bank starts messing with me, I can just pay the equity, uh, excuse me, pay the note off all once one chunk. But you stay in control. Mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to use the thing that I've said on the podcast a variety of times. Uh, I just got this in the mail again. Golden Oak Lending. Um, they said they say, hey, we can get you into a 15 year mortgage at two point two five percent. And that they're they're saying, and we can eliminate your 30-year mortgage. 30-year mortgage from them is about 3%. And I ask people this simple question. If the banks and the mortgage broking brokers are actually making money off the interest rate, why do they incent us by lowering the interest rate? Thus we pay off our house faster and they make less money two ways: lower interest rate and we pay it off faster. Why is that why are they doing that if that's how they're making money? Well, one what, one reason they're doing it is because they're getting fees to refinance. But the other way they're do, reason they're doing it is because they know they're going to get money back faster to redeploy. Mm-hmm. And money that's uh, worth today is going to be worth more into the future. So mathematically it doesn't make sense to accelerate this. You lose control, you're actually paying uh, with today's dollars um, that are worth more than they're going to be worth 30 years from now. So why would you pay with the same dollars 30 years from now? Because they're going to be worth less. But if, I, but if emotionally you just want your house paid off, then pay your house off. I have no problem with that. Yeah, not- I, I really like that part of the question too, because big picture, and we've talked about this before, Debt freedom, being debt-free or having a debt or a loan or a mortgage fully paid off is not the same thing as financial freedom. And I think a lot of times people really fixate on wanting no debt or no loans or no liability payments when they could be better served by saying, how do I save more? How do I use this cash then to generate cash flow by putting it into investments? And so I think that ideally is the better question here from Lon on YouTube. And the idea really is, do you just want a position of no liabilities or do you want a position where you have assets that are then able to be worth something to you? And and ultimately, you could say, well, my house is an asset. That's yes and no. If you're living in it, it's really a lifestyle expense. Yes, it's an asset because equity can be in the four walls of the house, but is that the ideal place for you to be storing that equity or that asset? in the four walls of your house. You have the possibility to lose money. You may not get access to it if you want to pull that out. And so it's not as safe or as liquid as you would like it to be. And there's no guarantee that it's going to grow. Now, granted, housing generally goes up in value, but it's not a guarantee that it will grow. So we would say the better place would be to be thinking about how do I store cash that's safe, liquid, and growing? Now, at the same time, that is not an excuse to be irresponsible and to just say, well, I have all these debts and I'm not going to focus on them at all. Again, case by case scenario may show that it's valuable for you to pay off liabilities. So let's go ahead and move on to the next one. This is from Christian on YouTube. I need some advice. My insurance company won't allow me to take a loan outside my CV, meaning cash value. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, this is, uh, I'm not really sure what he's asking. I think I know, actually. 
Okay, what do you think he's asking? I think he's asking, and I have had this question asked of me many times, so maybe this is where I'm interpreting through. I think a lot of times there can be this understanding that, hey, look, I've got a $1 million life insurance policy that I have $20,000 of cash value. The insurance company should be able to loan me a million dollars because I have a million dollar policy. Really what the insurance company is doing though, they're not, they're not lending you money or putting a lien against your death benefit, which is the big number. They're giving you a cash value against your, or sorry, they're giving you a loan. They're contracted. The contracted right of the policy owner is to be able to take a loan against the cash value in the policy. So if you're trying to get a loan from them against the death benefit, you're going to have a lot of hurdles. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about infinite banking. And certainly there can be ways that you can leverage the death benefit. But when we're talking about infinite banking, we're talking about getting a policy loan against your cash value. So Bruce, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I think sometimes people have an idea that they can borrow against the death benefit. Yeah, maybe that's it. Um, I know some people think um, you can actually collateralize your cash value with a, a second in the secondary market. So this is becoming very, very popular. So let's say you have $50,000 of cash value. The, the going rate and all the insurance companies right now is about 5% based on the Moody's index, bond index. And so there's companies out there say, that's saying, if you assign our policy to us as, as the beneficiary and owner, then we'll give you a loan at 3.75%. The problem with, is, is that if you only want 20000 a lot of these companies will say, well, we want, we want you to sign the entire policy to us so you can't uh, get to the rest of the 50000 balance. And I thought that's what he meant. It could very um, well be. I mean, there's not a lot of context here. So I no, think not. it could be interpreted either way. So um, hopefully the way we've answered that might have hit either question. Yeah. And, and, and just a little comment, you know, because this is coming up more and more. Why would I pay five percent to the insurance company when I could pay three point seven five percent to another company? Go ahead and do it. I don't care. Except that other comp, the bank or the other lending company is going to put you on a a scheduled payment that's going to be inflexible. Uh, if that's what if you think that's worth a uh, hundred twenty five basis points or one point two five percent, then go ahead and do it. I frankly don't think it's worth it, uh, especially if they're going to collateral collateralize your entire cash value. Um, Which that would the then contract. tie up everything so you're not able to use it for anything else. And then right. yes, that is, for me personally, I would not prefer to do that because then I'm giving up a lot of control. And ultimately, I would rather pay a little bit higher interest rate but have more control. Yeah, and no company's ever going, no insurance company's ever going to give you a higher loan than what you have cash value. Uh, the, the death benefit is actually the, the secondary collateralization of the, of the loan in case you don't pay it back. But they're not going to, that would be like saying to, a, um, I'm trying to use an analogy here, but I think that would be like saying, well, I'm going to be able to uh, take a HELOC out of 100% of my house Value. value. Yeah. Yeah. Value. So versus I don't, I don't know. against your equity. Correct. Yeah. And this comes up too, because I've had somebody say, well, what if I just get a term policy, then I can borrow against the death benefit. 
And that's not the case. You are able to borrow against your cash value, not the full death benefit, which is why a term policy does not offer that um, that infinite banking capability. Correct. Because they, the, the, the insurance company uh, doesn't know how long you're, I'm not sorry, the, the bank or the lending institution doesn't know how long you're going to live when they're going to get their money back, back and they want to redeploy it. Uh, so they need, they need some cash. And frankly, you know, in mutual companies, I tell people all the time, hey, you're paying 5%, but you're paying it back into a company that you actually own a part, a part of it. So you're reaping the benefits of that. And Frank, and I've talked to many actuaries at the company, the investment, not actuaries, excuse me, the investment officers at the company, they like 5% loans because they can't get 5% in the bond market reliably, reliably right now. So uh, it's good for the company. They think it's good. It's good for the company. Good, good. All right. So let's move on to the next question here. I'm not sure we'll have time for all of the ones that we had planned, but let's see. This was from Thomas on YouTube. If you have extra income and your current policy is being max funded, why can't you simply increase the face amount of the policy? Yeah, that's great, Thomas. Uh, It's called actuarial science. So it's a contract. That's a, that you might think of that as being something bad in the contract, but it's actually good because the actuaries are actually basing the cash value and the death benefit based on your age at the time the contract comes out. So if you, if you simply want to then later on say, hey, I want to increase my death benefit and so I can put more money in it, you're doing it at a later time so that they, they, the actuaries cannot figure out all those variables. So that's why they don't allow it per contract. And so, Thomas, I understand the frustration. That is why we often say, try to get your human life value in a term policy. And then a lot of people don't know this. You could get your human life uh, value in a term policy. Let's say you get another $2 million term policy, and now you have some extra income. You can convert a portion of the term. So let's say you have an extra income and you you got another $1,000 a month. All you have to do is go to the insurance company and say, I want to convert a portion of that 2 million that will equal a thousand dollar a month of whole life payment. And they will convert that portion and you'll still remain what the balance on that term policy. So you can have your cake and even eat it too, if you do it that way. Yeah. So essentially you'd end up with a, a term policy here and you can chunk it off one chunk at a time and continue to add whole life policies. And the cool thing with that as well is that you're still, when you get the term policy, you're locking in your underwriting status. So if your health changes from the time you initially put the term policy in place, you're not going to have that impact your underwriting on the conversion to whole life. Mm-hmm. All right, here, next question. This is regarding waiver of premium. This is from Shaquille on YouTube. How many hoops do I have to jump through to prove I am disabled? So this is if he was asking the question when we did a whole episode on waiver of premium, and this was specifically meaning if I have waiver of premium on my life insurance policy, then in order to prove to the life insurance company that I'm disabled, how do I, um, how do, I do that? Yeah, I, I wrote down here, if you're worried about the hoops, then don't buy it. Um, because this is kind of like people say hoops the same way I say loopholes. I don't think they're hoops you're jumping through. I think it's the contract language that you're jumping through. I'm a little jaded on this because I've worked with uh, pension 
that also have um, disability along the way. And I've sat down with many people that have tried to get a disability payment early in their from their pension. And then when we calculate the income, oh, I've done this with Social Security too. When we calculate their income, people say, oh, I can't live on that. I'm just going to keep working. And I'm like, slapping myself on the head. I'm like, so you're really not disabled. Uh, you just want a disability payment. So that's my skeptical answer. My contractual answer is, you, you, in most companies, you have to have two doctors that say you can no longer earn a living in any means. So it, there, there's some disability payments that will not, not waiver premium. But there's some disability payments that say in your own career, okay, that's not the case in waiver premium with insurance. It's it means in in uh, any career um, that so that's a lot more loose language. So I would say if you don't think it's worth it, then just don't do it. Mm -hmm. That's good. All right. So this is from IK on YouTube. Do all insurance companies off? I think he means offer whole oh, life. Do all insurance companies offer whole life insurance? Which insurance companies do you suggest? That is a yeah, great not question. All, not all uh, companies offer whole life insurance. Most companies do actually offer uh, some form of whole life insurance, but we're only recommending uh, companies that are mutual companies that are participating mutual companies, meaning that the uh, policyholders are part owners in the company and they're going to participate in the dividends. He asked, which insurance companies do you suggest? Um, I don't think we can really do that. I would just say, this is what I look for, for the companies that not, I only use, I use personally for myself and I recommend to our, our people. You need a company that has great financials. And when I say great financials, I mean their Comdex score, which is a combination of all uh, their uh, scores as far as their financial strength. Um, you know, I believe they need to be in the upper 10% or even higher. Mm -hmm. You know, we deal with ones that are in the top 10 of all of them. And the reason you want to do that is not because we think the insurance companies are going to go under or that you're going to. Uh, lose your money because I believe very strongly you're never you're not going to believe you're not going to lose your money because there's uh, things that we've talked about in the show that prevent that. One is the guarantee by the states. State guarantee will actually is much, mm -hmm. works much like FDIC, but also that other insurance companies in the past have come in and and bought these contracts out, so you you don't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. But I think the good financials let you sleep at night that you're going to continue to to get dividends because that's what you're going to see uh, with a with a borderline company they will actually stop paying uh, dividends or what has happened more what has happened more often in the past is they have demutualized they become a stock company uh, and demutualized uh, so and then the final thing is customer service. Does the company embrace the utilization of your cash value through the through loan policies, servicing of those policies? 
rather than an accumulation model. And some of the top mutual companies that are whole life companies, they don't embrace the utilization. They have to allow you to do it by contract. Don't get me wrong. They have to allow you to do that by contract, but they do not embrace the, the strategy. So the customer service is not set up that way. Their customer service representatives don't know what you're talking about. The vice president, the president, the marketing people, the vice president of, of customer service do not understand IBC whatsoever because they'd rather you just keep the money with the company and they'll give it back to you in 30 or 40 years, much like we talk about, you know, mutual funds and stocks bonds um, that do that. So I would just say, look at strong financials and look for companies that have strong um, alignment with IBC and good customer service. I would say also, if you want some more information on that, you can go to themoneyadvantage.com and look up our blogs. We have one called Best Life Insurance Companies. And so we have an eight-point checklist there for finding the best life insurance companies. And Bruce basically covered everything there. Um, but you really are looking at two things. You're looking at the company itself, which is the one offering the policy. And then you're also evaluating the advisor team because really in conjunction, that is how you're going to get a, the best policy that's really going to function the way you want it to. So on the best life insurance company, needs to be mutual, have good financial strength ratings, as Bruce already mentioned, have a good track record of paying dividends, and then have great customer service. You also want an advisor team to supplement that because you're not just dealing with the insurance company, you're dealing with the advisor who needs to then understand what you're trying to accomplish. So you need to make sure that you have overall philosophy alignment with the advisor team, that their strategy is helping serve your end needs and your goals, that they have a good relationship with the carrier, the insurance company, and that there's a succession plan in place with that advisor team that if something happened to that particular advisor you've been talking to, is there somebody to pick up the reins and carry on the strategy that you were putting in place? So that is just a quick high-level overview, but you can find more information about that if you go to our blog. All right, um, Bruce, we have time for a few more here. We have another question here from Riley on YouTube. What's the policy loan? If I wanted to borrow $1,000, are there any interest rates? Now, we have actually done a um, whole show specifically on this, but just for the sake of today's discussion, this might be something that's on your mind as well. So what's the policy loan? If I want to borrow 1000 are there interest rates? Bruce, what's the quickest, simplest answer that you want to share on that? Well, yeah, there is an interest rate. Uh, <clears throat> the policy loan, uh, the interest rate is variable. Um, but once again, uh, it's by it's by contract. They set it. They set the interest rates uh, once a year. They are accumulating uh, along the way, and you pay those. Um, you you pay the interest once a year. It's just like any other loan. If you pay back sooner than the, I shouldn't say any other loan, but it's like a loan. If you pay it back sooner than you save save on interest, it's, it's that simple. This is not this is not magic. This is just basic uh, financial instruments. So that's the best I can say on that. Bruce, you said it was variable. It can be a fixed interest rate, correct? Fixed or variable? Well, no, it's very, it, it's uh, what I meant. Yes, it could be fixed or variable. What I meant is it's fixed for one year. It doesn't necessarily going to stay fixed for the entire contract of, of the life of the contract. So every year they, re, they reestablish the rate. And there's advantages and disadvantages of having a variable rate uh, because a lot of times it'll go then to uh, 
direct recognition. So then you don't get the growth on the dividend side. Uh, if you do a variable rate, you will. Uh, in some of some contracts, you will not. So you have to look at the individual companies. Once again, it just comes down. There's not really a deal which is better or worse um, because the insurance companies are just trying to make it all even out for the long run. You just got to see what's best for you. So I mentioned a previous episode. If you go to themoneyadvantage.com, we have a whole episode on interest on an IBC policy loan that we have answered that in more detail. So you can go there for further in-depth questions as well. All right. Next question from WD on YouTube. Can I do a 1035 exchange from a guaranteed VUL to a hybrid or called asset-based LTC? Question mark across different insurance providers. So, uh, Bruce, do you want to go ahead and take the interpretation of what exactly? Yeah, is- my, yeah, the advisor in me wants to say, I don't know until I see the contract language, but in general, the answer is yes. Uh, you can 1035 between different insurance products. Uh, I actually like hybrid um, long-term care products, and this is an annuity product. and and. I actually like these as a way to solve for long-term care. Um, you can also do this, though, in many of your um, mutual companies for whole life. There, once again, there's some advantages and disadvantages with the hybrid. You actually can get uh, almost immediate long-term care. Some of them have a waiting period of two years or five years to get the maximum amount. Uh, we're not going to get into that. Uh, how that design is, but the short answer is yes. We do have an episode on 1035 exchanges as well. So you can look that up on our, on themoneyadvantage.com. And we've got a whole episode on what that means. When should you use a 1035 exchange with life insurance is what that's called. That's back from November of 2020. So more information on that there. All right. Question. Actually, I think this is just more of a comment. This is from Tim on YouTube. Both keep the ideas coming. I just started doing IBC a couple of years back and your content on this topic and others is excellent. I've been listening to your podcast for a while and get great value from it. Much appreciated. Thank you, Tim. And we we hear a lot of questions or comments, I should say, like that as well. I just wanted to throw in one. um, And so thank you for sharing that thought and feedback. All right, um, Bruce, we have time for a couple more. This was on a episode that we did called Taking Loans and Paying Them Back. And his question was, what are the best insurance companies to do this with, taking loans and paying them back? This was from Quan on YouTube. We basically answered this in the previous question from... Yeah, I could, I'd like to add one other thing. Yeah, though. go ahead. Um, this is where it gets very confusing um, to, to, the, to most people. The difference between direct recognition and non-direct recognition. And uh, simply, um, it, it comes down to the dividends that are applied on a direct recognition loan. And for our listeners, what happens in a direct recognition loan is they're going to collateralize using the cash value, but they're not going to give you the same interest or excuse me, dividend rate on that collateralized portion of the cash value. The easiest way to do this is by example. So let's say you have $100,000 of cash value and you want to take out a $50,000 loan. With a direct recognition, they're going to give you the normal dividend on the balance of the 
50000 that you still have available, but the $50,000 that you have collateralizing the $50,000 loan, they're either going to give you no dividend or a reduced dividend. So right, I would I'm say- I'm just going to interrupt for a second. So direct recognition means they recognize the loan. When they recognize the loan, they drop the dividend rate or the, the growth rate on that portion. So recognizing Perfect. means they lower it on the yeah, portion right. borrowed against. They recognize that, yes. So I always tell people, if you think you're going to be using, and what's interesting, a lot of companies, and we can get into the dividends a lot, but a lot of a lot of direct recognition companies actually have a higher div- gross dividend rate, not a net dividend rate, because you shouldn't be comparing just dividend rates because they're all applied differently per company. And this is this drives me crazy because people are always comparing illustrations and saying, oh, I'm going to take this illustration because they have a higher dividend. But how are they applying that? How are they applying it when you take a loan? So one thing, and this is a general statement, not a specific statement, though. If you're going to use utilize your cash value often, you have to take into consideration, in my opinion, although it's not a deal killer, whether you're going to have a direct recognition loan or an indirect or non-direct recognition loan. So that's just something to consider. I'm not going to say what's the best. I think you can do this with any company that's a mutual company that is participating. Just pick one and get going, get doing it. That's true. And that is really the best way to get started. And honestly, you can have a direct recognition company loan or a policy and maybe your next policy is going to be a non-direct recognition policy. So Yeah, some companies have the ability to do both or either, depending on whether you're going to do a variable or a fixed rate. So, I mean. So, it, excellent. You know, and lots of too, options. Yeah, getting too complicated. Uh, it's paralysis uh, by analysis. Yes. All right. Here is from Arash. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly on YouTube. Hi, I'm trying to figure out the best way to pay off $30,000 of student loan debt, student debt loan, by using a life policy loan. I feel term policies would be the best for someone that is so young. I'm still confused when it comes to formulating what part of your yearly premium is contributed to your cash value. I'm sort of lost and would love some direction. Yeah, great question. That that, that depends on the design of the policy. Uh, you can actually get you know, quite a bit of the cash value available early. That doesn't mean just because you have a lot of the cash value uh, available early that that's the best for you. Um, depends on how much guaranteed death benefit you need. It also uh, depends on you know future growth and what you think interest rates are going to do in the future. So, uh, and also, Resh, I agree with you. Term is very good for young people uh, because I believe that the death benefit is is very important. So, if that's all you can do as you, when you're younger, then yes, get a term policy and get as much term in place as possible. I'll add to that real briefly as well. If you do want to pay off a student loan with life insurance, you will not be able to do it with a policy loan against a term policy because you don't get policy loans from term policies. The question really comes down to, is it the best use of your cash to pay off that loan? I mean, ultimately, you're looking at what's the best strategy to pay off the loan, but I think you want to step two steps back from that and say, do I in fact want to pay off this student loan debt as quickly as possible? Now, we have a podcast episode on this. I'm going to look up the term for it, um, the cash flow index. 
If you go to themoneyadvantage.com and look up cash flow index, we have a whole episode on the cash flow index. This is a way of thinking through your loans or liabilities and figuring out which ones are most advantageous for you to pay off in terms of how much cash they'll free up in your life, your, your monthly experience of your cash flows, how much cash will be freed up so that you don't have to pay those fixed payments anymore if you pay off that debt. So having a student loan may not be a bad idea just to pay the minimum payments for a long time. You still have the loan, yes, but how much extra cash do you have to devote to something else, more savings, more investing all along the way that could then potentially pay off the whole loan much quicker if you were able to accelerate your savings and investments. The name of that episode is called Cash Flow Index, The Smartest Way to Pay Off Debt. Basically, the premise is you're taking a calculation of the total balance of the loan divided by the minimum monthly payment, and you're finding out, is this something that is really good for me to pay off as quickly as possible, or is it not as high of a priority in terms of how much cash flow it's going to free up? It's a different way of looking at liabilities than most people would say. They would say, well, just get off, get rid of all debt get rid of your high interest debt first, get rid of your smallest debts first. There's many strategies out there. Ultimately, you need to ask yourself the question, is this the best use of my cash to pay off this loan? All right. Um, Bruce, you have time for one more? Yeah, go keep going. All right. Uh, this is from The Force. I don't know. I think this is on YouTube. Some people have interesting names on uh, <clears throat> YouTube. I'm a bit confused. I've heard of life insurance dividend is actually a refund of part of your premium. So when you say your policy grows, how is that so? How is that so if it's your own premiums being paid back to you? Good question. Yeah, this is very, this is, this is uh, brought up all the time with people that try to debunk people from buying whole life insurance because they say, oh, they're just ripping you off. They're just overcharging you and then just uh, giving back uh, the unused part of the premium. Um, if that's how it's classified by the IRS, and there's some truth to that, but that's only because what the actuaries do, they say, hey, if we do not get any return, we want to make sure that we're over collateralizing at the very beginning. and But they're going to use that additional money to go out and invest that, and then they're going to make more money on that. So then they're going to return that part that they used to make more money. And the great part about that is, is that that comes back to you tax-free, even though the company has made more money. I always tell people, what are you comparing this to? I mean, it's the same thing when you buy any product. You know, people every day watch commercials and they say, hey, come buy this car and you'll get a discount at 20%. So what you're saying is we're actually selling it to some people that are paying too much and we're refunding that back to you, the other person. Mm -hmm. Or they're or they're saying, I mean, you, I know what I don't know if our listeners know what breakage is. Breakage is is when somebody says, "Hey, get an AT and T iPhone, and if you buy it full price, we'll send you a two hundred dollar gift card back to you." Mm -hmm. Well, there's something in the industry called breakage. They know that about twenty percent of all gift cards never get redeemed. So they're so they're just kind of sending your money back to you. This happens in economics all the time. 
You can do it with stock dividends. You know, you buy a stock for X amount of price. They use the money to actually, on the initial IPO, to you know raise the or uh, build up the company, and then the board of directors get back together and they say, "Hey, we Coca Cola, we made a lot of money. We're going to declare a dividend." So what they've actually done is overcharged everybody on their can of Coke, and they just returned the excess profits to the people that own Coca Cola. So this happens all the time. If this is if this uh, gets you uh, confused, or if if you're worried about this, like you're saying, "Hey, I'm just paying back my own or my money," then don't do it because you're never going to be convinced. It's it's just uh, the IRS way to make this, and it's not the whole story. It's only part of the story. I would say also on that we have a whole episode on dividends and. Dividends at the insurance level at the insurance company are calculated not just only on your premiums paid into the company. They take premiums paid into the company, they invest those, they put them into most most specifically into conservative investment grade corporate bonds. And so they are then having a profit of the company that is not strictly only your premiums. Premiums are not the only inflow into the insurance company's um, fund. And so then they're taking out their um, expenses. They're setting some aside in a reserve fund. And I'm so I'm significantly oversimplifying exactly what they do with the cash. But I just need you to know that when they declare a dividend, it is from the excess profit of the insurance company that is going back to the owners. It is not simply from a fund that said, here's our premiums paid in. We did nothing with that money. We just set it in the premium fund and it sat there over time and then we redistributed it. That's a, that is not a correct way of thinking about what the insurance company is doing with premiums. Yeah, Rachel, I, I had a conversation with somebody one day and I said, look, we're showing you a 10 pay right here. A 10 pay means you're only paying over 10 years. There's different, there's different designs. And I said on the, on the 10th year, you know, uh, or after the 10th year, you're actually still getting dividends and yet you're not paying premiums anymore. So how is that only a return of your money? Because you don't have any more money that you're putting in this particular thing. And then you got to go out of, you know, just keep going out. 20 or 30 years, you have a lot more cash value in the policy than you actually put in in premiums. So if it was true, all they're doing is returning your money, then your cash value would never grow faster than the premium that you put in it. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, that cash value is net of all the costs, insurance costs and all the costs to run the company too. Mm -hmm. So People get hung up on this all the time. And once again, it's because people are, are feeding this to them because they, they want them to do something else with their money than to buy whole life insurance. And that's fine. If you can't believe it, go do something else. You're never going to be happy with this. You're always going to go back to that particular thing and say, you know, I'm just getting my money back. So, yeah, it's I a mindset and happy. a way of thinking. Right. You, you exactly. do. You do ultimately need to do what you believe is right. And that we're all given the faculties of our brain and our intelligence to go explore something, find it out fully, and be able to make a informed decision about what you truly want to do with your money, and then be happy with the decision that you made that was based on 
your research. So if you want to dive further on that, we do have whole life insurance dividends demystified. We did that interview with Perry Miller, and he actually used to be on staff with the insurance company. And uh, Bruce, I know you know him personally and probably could tell me offhand what his title was, but he was sharing uh, what dividends are all about um, from his experience. So Perry was a regional vice president uh, for many, many years. Yes. So that's a great episode if you want to dig into dividends some more. Uh, Bruce, I have time for one more if you do. Yeah, let's do one more. All right. So um, I love this one. Okay. This is, we did a episode on why you shouldn't cancel your whole life policy. And so this is the comment. And um, this is from Go Browns on YouTube. How funny that I just saw this video when I'm about to cancel my whole life policy completely from New York Life. The premium is just too expensive regardless of how my insurance guy provided all the sizzles, but didn't provide the hmm real stake. I have insurance through my work and my net worth is enough to provide for my family. Oh, Bruce, there's so much we could talk about in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, um, I would say don't cancel your whole life insurance policy. There's three components to every whole life insurance policy. There's the owner, there's the insured, and there's the beneficiary. The owner can change the ownership to anybody, any other person or entity they want. They can also, that owner can also change the beneficiary. So if you don't want it anymore and you got cash value in there, let me know. Make me the owner. I will give you the cash value amount. So let's say it's 20,000. I'll give you the $20,000 and I will then make myself the beneficiary of the policy. And I'll just keep getting all these policies. And then eventually when you kick the bucket, I am going to have all these leveraged death benefits to grow my network. So that's how uh, strongly I feel about don't cancel, get a hold of me and I'll do it. And, and I've said this to a lot of people. And people are like, well, where are you going to get all this money? Well, first of all, you don't know how much money I have or my or access to capital. But secondly, if you give it to me, guess where I'm going to access the capital to give you? Through a policy loan of your policy. So it's the same thing you could be doing. Um, that's how strongly I believe about this. So that's my initial thought. And I'm sure you have some thoughts. And you know, I, I do have some other comments after you comment, Rachel. Um, yes. So a couple things here. Very, very cool. Um, there's a lot of options besides canceling a policy. If you're considering canceling, it's probably because you're disenfranchised somehow. You thought, you know, I have insurance through my work. My net worth is enough to provide for my family. So let's just address those real quickly. Insurance through work is usually group insurance. Usually, um, it doesn't travel with you. There's a word for that. I'm, I'm not sure what the word is, but usually if you leave that employment either voluntarily or involuntarily, you lose that life insurance coverage. Um, just something to think about. Secondly, if you have enough assets, many people will say, well, let me just go ahead and self-insure. And what that means is I have enough cash, enough investments, enough equity in my home that I don't need life insurance anymore because all of my assets could pay to my family and take care of my family if I pass away. That's the thinking. And ultimately what that is called is self-insuring. And that is actually a more expensive way to handle insurance because you would have to, if that, when that situation happens, because we all pass away at some point, you would have to use up your assets for your family as opposed to having paid premium in and then having much greater death benefit than the premiums you put into the policy to take care of your family. 
So self-insuring is more expensive. And what I would say is the benefit of having a death benefit in place. Many of you know that if you've been listening to the show for a while, I had a situation about two years ago where I almost died. And that very near death experience brought me face to face with the reality that I am so thankful for my life insurance policies that are in place on my life, because I know that if I were to pass away, the death benefit would then be there to take care of my family, to help my husband be able to think through what to do. Um, He wouldn't have to figure out working and taking care of kids at the same time. And let's just say we fast forward 50 years from now, even, um, you know, I'm in my thirties now, so I'm in my eighties and say, I, I still have life insurance at that point. Say I do pass away. I'm planning to live way longer than that to about 110, but let's just say I'm 85 and I have all the assets that I could possibly need. And I have multiple businesses and multiple real estate investments. And I'm in a position that nobody would say I need life insurance. Life insurance is not a need product. It is a want product. It allows me to have more than I had otherwise. It is a small part of a a much bigger financial picture that if you have the life insurance, just think about it from the death benefit perspective. I now have so many more capabilities that I can do just because I had the life insurance in place. It can be just this additional death benefit can do so much more for my family. But in addition, if I'm using a whole life policy, I have... Uh, a hedge against inflation because this is additionally growing alongside of my other investments. I can use it as a source of income either after my other assets have been depleted or at any point along the way, if they dropped in value, it is a, um, a buffer asset, I think is what um, Rodney Mogan calls that to be able to complement and substitute for your other investments when they drop in value or have a down year. And I'm in a position where now I'm thinking about my life insurance can be my legacy so I can use up the other assets if I want to. There's just so many other choices and options that I have because I have life insurance in force. Now, I am a huge believer in life insurance, not just because I sell it and have the capability to profit when somebody chooses to work with our company and honors us and allows us to work in their life and be able to help them with these concepts. I benefit because I own it and I own it because it helps my financial life, not just because it's something that I say that, that I believe in. It's something that I truly believe in. Yeah. And one of the things um, I'm, I'm always uh, intrigued by, I just had this conversation yesterday with a, with a potential client who was trying to decide whether they were going to drop a $1.25 million term policy when they got the, um, cash value, whole life policy in place because it was going to be 750000 So they said, well, I, I'm thinking about just dropping it. And they were like 40 years old female and they were paying $113 a month. And I said to her, well, let's just think about this. So let's say you do pass away tomorrow and you get both of these death benefits. That's 1.25 and seven fifty. just happened to be $2 million. And I said, let's say then that $2 million comes to your family tax-free and you, you tell them, hey, if I ever pass away, get a hold of Bruce, and Bruce will take over the $2 million, and he'll provide you an income stream. Uh, we can debate this all day long, uh, but the industry standard for this is we believe that you could get about a 4% rate of return safely on this. Now, we can talk about paring down the asset, you know, so on and so forth, but we're talking about 
a, a person that has a 12 year old and a seven year old. So they're going to need this money, you know, at least for 10 years through college or so on and so forth. And then they, she also has a spouse to so need it for a long time. So this is a 4% rate of return on $2 million is, is $80,000. That's all it is. And uh, she's, and she was clearing about $10,000 a month or $120,000. And it kind of, it, it, she had an aha moment that, oh, 750000 isn't enough to take care of my family. And I come from the generation where I grew up in the 70s, first understanding numbers. And I didn't even know numbers went up to $100,000. Now we have, I sit down with clients and say, well, I have $150,000 of life insurance. If I die, my, my family will be okay. And I'm like, really? People have no idea uh, that $150,000 is hardly anything to protect their income. Mm -hmm. So if you start doing those calculations and then looking at inflation into the future also, um, it comes down to exactly what you said, Rachel, a want versus a need. Yes, you could even get to $3 million and get the need taken care of. Okay, we got the income replacement. We got the college college uh, paid for, any other thing we have paid for, that's a need. But what do you want to happen? Because in time of tragedy, you might want them not to even have to worry about things at all for a while. Mm -hmm. So it's really, the, in, the insurance industry has done a disservice to where they went to needs-based analysis instead of want-based analysis. And the reason they did it is because Anybody could commoditize a needs-based needs analysis. Hey, just put these in. Put how much you make, how much your mortgage is, how much college do you think you need, how much your debts are, how much funeral expenses are, and we're going to kick this out. And look, we don't even need an insurance agent. Or we don't even, or I should say, we, we need an insurance agent, but they don't have to be smart. They don't have to, they don't have to take in consideration all the things. So, yes. I don't believe the net worth, you said it very, very, very well. You cannot leverage your net worth enough to get what you want in most cases. Well, I think this has been a really interesting conversation today, Bruce. Thank you so much for um, suggesting that we do this and for um, just the idea to be able to pull in a lot of these questions, be able to answer them. We have a I think we've covered 13 and we can't, we set out with 23 questions to answer today. So we'll um, do another episode on this very soon for you. In the meantime, if you have questions or if this conversation has sparked more questions for you, please go ahead and ask them. You can ask them below this video. You can send them into hello at themoneyadvantage.com. You can um, even pop them into Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever you're watching. Send us a, a message um, on any of those platforms as well. We would be happy to address your questions. And granted, we never would share personal financial details or data or anything like that that's confidential um, in this type of a format. But if the question is something that would help other listeners to be able to think differently and possibly jump over some of those hangups or hurdles that they may have in thinking about life insurance and thinking about their financial life and having financial control, we would love to be able to answer them in this format as well. So Thanks for being with us today on this episode of the Money Advantage podcast. And in closing, we'll say you can go ahead and jump on our advisor calendar as well if you would like to explore the opportunity and the possibility of figuring out what exactly it looks like for you to get into a life insurance policy 
or to um, just look at your entire financial picture and say, how can I benefit? How can I improve what I'm doing and maximize my dollars so that I am in the most secure position today and as far into the future as possible and make sure that no matter what happens in my life, I am set up with the best set of circumstances. We'd love to be an answer for you in that and a part of your journey. So you can do that at themoneyadvantage.com. We have a great advisor team and we'd love to be part of your story. Um, Thank you so much. And in closing, we'll say success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.